Today, those who are celebrating birthdays who are listeners of IRIS include Russell Nelson of Des Moines, Charles Semple of Sioux City, Roger Steigers of Cedar Rapids, Susan Lloyd also of Cedar Rapids. So we wish them all a very happy birthday. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you are hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. Now it's time for today's obituaries, and here's Nicole. We have one person today to remember, and he is Stephen Paget. Stephen Paget, of 80 years old, died on October 27th at Israel Family Hospice House in Ames, Iowa. He was the son of Bourbon and Viola Paget of Kellerton, Iowa. Steve was an associate professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and also the emeritus professor of rural sociology at Iowa State University. He is survived by his wife of 52 years, Janet Paget, and their two children, Courtney and Noel Paget Morrell. A memorial service will be held at 10.30 a.m. on November 1st at the United Congregational Church in Ames. A light luncheon will be served following that service, and family will greet visitors at that time. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions can be made to Food at First. That is at 611 Clark Avenue in Ames. The zip code is 50010. Or you can also donate to another charity of your choice. To leave an online condolence or view a full obituary, you can visit the website www.grandinfuneralandcremationcare.com. And returning to our headlines is Rachel. Before we do that, just a note about the death notices also in today's paper. Um, there are several. Ruth Blom, age 88, of Hubbard, died on October 28th. Linda Fontana, age 79, of Windsor Heights, died on the 21st of October. Darlene Harvey, age 94, of Urbandale, died on October 24th. Jeffrey Knox, age 71, of Des Moines, died on October 27th. Betty Ruth Moeller, age 96, of Urbandale, died on October 29th. Jack Peter, age 80, of Urbandale, died on October 24th. Fred Renfeldt, of West Des Moines, age 67, died on October 25th and Patricia or Pat Ann Schmidt of Sherdan, age 92, died on October 27th. There's one more story in the Metro and Iowa section. Des Moines pools may get upgrades. This is by Kyle Werner. Instead of building a fancy new aquatic center, Des Moines is looking to spend $16.4 million to upgrade its current swimming pools, many of which are 40 years old and are in need of repairs as well as more amenities. 
A survey of pool users found they'd prefer upgrades to the existing facilities at Northwest Family Aquatic Center, Nehas Family Aquatic Center, Teach Out Aquatic Center, Ashworth Swimming Pool, and Birdland Swimming Pool, than a new center, according to a consultant's report. Beyond basic repairs, some new amenities could include new water slides at Nehas on the south side and a splash pad at Birdland on the north side. Ben Page, Des Moines Parks and Recreation Director, and Jeff Bartley, co-founder and principal engineer with Water's Edge Aquatic Design, presented to the City Council at a work session October 2nd their findings on what investment Des Moines Aquatics need in the next few years. The city partnered with Water's Edge Aquatic Design, an engineering firm that specializes in pools and aquatic facilities, to conduct a study to find out what should be done with the pool. It was not until the last one to two years we were starting to experience the end-of-life cycles on some of the more significant mechanicals, plumbing, and electrical systems needed to operate the pools, Page said in an email. This plan allows for us to systematically prioritize each pool and what repairs, replacements happen in what order to extend the life cycles another 20 to 30 years. Each of Des Moines' pools were built 30 to 40 years ago. The assessment this year looked at attendance of each facility, the costs of operation, and their conditions. There were 109,132 people who used the pools this summer, according to the study. It cost about $1.2 million to operate the pools in 2022, with a total revenue of $426,000. The study found the pools need about $1.8 million in immediate repairs to maintain general upkeep, $9 million in critical repairs to extend the life of the pools, and $5.6 million in upgrades like water slides, shade structures, and ADA improvements. Upgrades could increase attendance and revenue at Des Moines Pools, Waters Edge says. The Des Moines City Council will consider the $16.4 million request during its budget process this winter. Waters Edge Aquatic Design recommends certain repairs be done immediately or within the next few years for general upkeep of the facilities. Immediate repairs include replacing pool filtration systems, electrical work, painting of the pool's basins, and repairing small structure repairs. The total cost for these immediate repairs is $1.8 million. Critical repairs are not considered to be essential at this time, but are recommended by Water's Edge Aquatic Design in order to extend the life of the facilities. These repairs include adding pool heaters, new wastewater tanks that connect to sewer lines, updated drain systems, refurbishing slides, and other general work. The total cost for these critical repairs is $9 million. Enhancements recommended by Waters Edge Aquatic Design would total $5.6 million. These are recommended to improve attendance of the pools and increase revenues. Amenities recommended for each facility include at Northwest, wet deck with sprays and added shade, at Nehas, wet deck with play structure and added shade and new water slides, at Birdland, ADA improvements, a splash pad and added shade, at Teach Out, synthetic turf berms, 
new large shade stage for events, added shade and overhead lighting for night events, and at Ashworth, ADA improvements, new entry and concessions, remodeled bathhouse, added shade, and zero depth entry. We are just over a week away from the November 7th election, and the Register has been featuring a lot of candidates from different races. Today's feature is the city council race in Urbandale. So let's meet the candidates. This is a piece that's written by Philip Sitter from the Des Moines Register. This is out of the main section of the newspaper on page 3A. Three candidates are vying for three seats on the Urbandale City Council. That includes Patricia Bodie, that's the incumbent, uh, Bridget Carberry Montgomery is the incumbent, excuse me, and also Blake Rosendahl. The Des Moines Register asked each of those candidates to respond to questions on why they're running and the issues that their community is facing. Their answers may be lightly edited for clarity or length. The election is again on November 7th. Patricia Body is 69 years old. She grew up in St. Louis County, Missouri. Her current home is Urbandale, and her education includes bachelor's in journalism from the University of Missouri-Columbia, bachelor of science in agricultural engineering from Iowa State University, and a master's in water resources from Iowa State University. She also has a certificate of public management from Drake University. Political experience includes not political experience per se, but active in related volunteer service that includes City of Urbandale Capital Improvement Program Committee, Complete Streets Committee, fundraising for parks projects, and currently a trustee of the Urbandale Water Utility. The incumbent is Bridget Carberry Montgomery. She is 48 years old, grew up in Iowa City, and currently lives in Urbandale. Education includes Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and History with Honors from Loyola Marymount University, Master's in Urban and Regional Planning from the University of Iowa. Political experience includes Urbandale City Council, first elected in 2019, DART Commissioner from 2020 to present, Urbandale Plan and Zoning Commission from 2009 to 2017, Commission, uh, oh, excuse me, Hunger Free Dallas County and the Free, the Food Grid, Board of Directors, Urbandale Fire Station Number 43, Bond Referendum Committee Chair in 2017. And Blake Rosendahl is 30 years old, grew up north of Sully, current home is Urbandale, and his education includes undergraduate degree in computer science from Central College, Master's of Business Administration from Iowa State University. His political experience includes Urbandale Public Art Committee from 2021 till present, Urbandale's 4th of July Celebration Committee from 2021 to present, and the Polk County Precinct Election Official from 2020 until 2023. So the first question from the register for the candidates is, why are you running? Patricia says, when leaders can care and work together, local government can be a great source for solutions to challenges. The climate crisis in particular needs local action. Every level of government matters here. Bridget says, I'm running for re-election to Urbandale City Council because there's still work to be done to make Urbandale a more vibrant and inclusive community. The momentum I had in 2019 was quickly lost to the pandemic response in March of 2020. In my second term, I will continue to prioritize 
investing in affordable and inclusive housing throughout Urbandale, strengthening infrastructure that includes stormwater management and improves sustainability practices, also creating community that transcends county, interstate, or school district boundaries, and also supporting economic development practices to grow Urbandale's job market and business sector and enhancing amenities and experiences that includes recreation, restaurant and retail development, and entertainment. Blaze says, I'm running for Urbandale City Council because our city's parks and trail system is an excellent community asset that needs to be continued investment to provide for current and future residents. I also believe that by expanding our focus on sustainable infrastructure, providing more housing options for people in all stages of their lives, and continuing to keep public safety a top priority, we can create a springboard for economic investment in our community east and west of the interstate. Next question is, what is the biggest issue facing your community and how would you address it? Patricia says the climate crisis intensifies nearly every year challenge ahead of Urbandale and also other communities. Housing, transportation, food security, stormwater management, clean air and water, economic vitality, public safety. Urbandale needs a climate action plan to pursue a fast shift to renewable fuels and electrification and also to be truly ready for the climate challenges ahead. Bridget says the biggest issue facing Urbandale is being divided by six school districts and two counties. From Merle Hay Road to Warrior Lane and beyond, we must take pride in ownership of living in Urbandale. And to thrive, we must value our neighbors' opinions, whether they live in Polk or Dallas County, or if their kids go to Urbandale, West Des Moines, Waukee, or elsewhere. I have made it my mission to advocate for creating a welcoming community, one that provides services and amenities from east to west and north to south. I'll continue to seek creative solutions to overcoming this invisible barrier and will push city staff to keep pushing boundaries. Blake says, I believe properly planning for future growth is going to be the biggest issue facing our community in the future. We need to create a coalition of public and private partners to coordinate our investment efforts in the same direction so that we can recognize the economic growth that our community is capable of. Recent changes at the state level to how cities can fund projects will create barriers to that investment, so those coalitions will be more important than ever to make sure we can support that growth. Third question and final question from the register. Oh, no, that's not true. It's the third question from the register. It is, voters earlier this year, should the city continue to pursue that project? And if so, how? And if not, why? Patricia says the voters decided the UPLEX proposal was not a good fit for the Urbandale. We need to look at other ways to provide public health and recreation opportunities as Urbandale grows. Bridget says, I was a supporter of the UPLEX project. As a resident of Dallas County, my neighbors and I are keenly aware that we do not have similar large-scale recreational opportunities that are available on the Polk County side. I led the effort to get an aquatic center built at Walnut Creek Regional Park that was ultimately rebuffed by previous councils. I'll continue to push for recreational opportunities throughout our community, but nothing on the scale of the UPLEX. If voters want to see large-scale amenities, they will need to let the council know and be willing to support it in the ballot box and also with their checkbooks. 
Blake says it was clear that the Uplex was not preferred course of action by the community, and I'm glad voters had an opportunity to have a role in that decision. While the Uplex wasn't the direction the community chose to go, it will be critical in the future to have city services and infrastructure west of the interstate. And finally, the register wanted to know what is your vision for growth in this community. Patricia says, "I want to see Urbandale grow in a way that helps people of any age or background feel like they do belong here. I want them to have ample opportunity to live, work, learn, and play here. If we expand our footprint, I want Urbandale to proactively protect soil, water, and habitat resources as development occurs." Bridget says, "Growth in Urbandale requires a balanced approach between tax and job generation." Generating economic and commercial development and residential development that can be supported by our tax base. We need to continue to revitalize downtown Urbandale and the Douglas Avenue corridor, and look for new opportunities for redevelopment of aging office and industrial uses. We also need to ensure that we are investing in our existing housing stock to maintain its long-term viability. As we continue to develop westward into Dallas County, we need to offer housing opportunities that are attainable for everyone, from workforce housing to entry-level homes, from condos to townhouses to executive and senior housing. And finally, Blake says, "My vision for growth in Urbandale is that we make investments in both sides of our community to enhance the quality of life for everyone. Growth on the east side of Urbandale can be done through mixed-use developments in the city's historic downtown and diverse options for housing. Growth on the west side of Urbandale can be done by expanding our economic hubs to provide a variety of amenities and housing options that create regional commercial destinations. This growth cannot happen without the." Foundation of city infrastructure and services, which should be carefully prioritized to support these efforts. Going to international news, civil order breaking down in Gaza. UN officials say this is by Trevor Hughes of USA Today. The UN's Palestinian Relief Agency warns that civil order is starting to break down in Gaza. As thousands of desperate people broke into warehouses and distribution centers to take food and other supplies, after Israeli ground forces moved in, Thomas White, the Gaza Affairs Director of the UN's Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, said on Sunday in a statement that the current system for delivering humanitarian aid isn't working. He said displaced Palestinians are crowding into homes in the middle and southern areas of the Gaza Strip, with up to 50 people sheltering in some households. Israel has been bombarding Gaza since an October 7th attack led by Hamas killed more than 1,400 people on Israeli soil, and ignited a war that has killed more than 8,000 people in Gaza, according to the latest count by the Hamas-run health ministry. As it has increased its military response, Israel ordered people in northern Gaza to move south, concentrating people in an area without adequate food, water, or other services, according to humanitarian officials. Aid is intermittently arriving and isn't meeting the needs, White said. So far, 88 trucks have entered Gaza from the south via Egypt, but are being slowed by exhaustive inspections, including a ban on bringing in fuel. He said, "The needs of the communities are immense, if only for basic survivals, while the aid we receive is meager and inconsistent." He said.
On Saturday, people took food and hygiene supplies from warehouses and distribution centers, White said, an indication they are growing desperate. This is a worrying sign that civil order is starting to break down after three weeks of war and a tight siege on Gaza, White said. People are scared, frustrated, and desperate. Internet and cell phone service have been partially restored to the Gaza area, the UN's Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East reported on Sunday. Connectivity dropped dramatically on Friday, and the blackout halted humanitarian convoys into the area. White said tensions and fear are made worse by the cuts in the phones and Internet communication lines. They feel that they are on their own, cut off from their families inside Gaza, and the rest of the world. In a video statement Saturday, Lieutenant General Herzi Halevi of the Israeli Defense Forces said the response against Hamas had moved into a new phase with soldiers deployed into Gaza. Israel heavily bombarded Gaza following the October 7th attack, and many experts believed that was a prelude to what could be vicious fighting in the tunnels Hamas operates from beneath Gaza. The best soldiers and commanders, well-trained and prepared, are now operating in Gaza, Halevi said. The ground forces are currently carrying out an important and complex operation. The objectives of this war require a ground operation. Achievements demand risks, and as we know, every victory comes at a price. In a series of messages posted to X, formerly known as Twitter, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel is doing all it can to minimize civilian casualties during the ground offensive. In a prelude to the ground offensive, the IDF said its jets hit 150 underground targets in the northern Gaza Strip, attacking tunnels and underground combat spaces and killing several Hamas members. This is the second stage of the war, the goals of which are clear, destroying Hamas military and governing capabilities and bringing the captives back home, Netanyahu said on X. He continued, the IDF does everything to avoid harming non-combatants. I again call on the civilian population to evacuate to a safe area in the southern Gaza Strip. In contrast, in contrast, the cynicism of the enemy knows no bounds. He carries out war crimes by using civilians as human shields, by using hospitals as terrorist command centers, and to supply fuel to its war machine. As Israel expands its ground incursion into the territory, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said Hamas is hiding behind the civilian population in Gaza. While Israel has a right to defend itself, Sullivan said it also has a responsibility to protect Palestinian citizens in Gaza. Israel has a responsibility under international humanitarian law and the laws of war to do all in their power to protect the civilian population, Sullivan said in an interview on ABC's This Week. He added that the U.S. will continue to ask hard questions about how they are thinking this through, how they are proceeding. Meanwhile, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan held a massive pro-Palestinian rally in Istanbul on Saturday in which he said his country planned to formally accuse Israel of committing war crimes in the Gaza Strip. Erdogan said, Israel, we will proclaim you as a war criminal to the world, without elaborating on the mechanism he intended to employ or what the action would mean.
He continued, we are making our preparations, and we will declare Israel to the world as a war criminal. In response, Israel said it was pulling its diplomats from Turkey, although some had already left for security reasons. Erdogan, whose ruling party has roots in Turkey's Islamic movement, has been an outspoken critic of Israel's treatment of Palestinians since coming into office in 2003. Turkey is a NATO member, which means it's closely allied with the United States militarily. Israel is not a NATO member, but is also militarily close with the U.S. Turkey and Israel have long been at odds, but there were signs of a diplomatic thaw last year when the Israeli prime minister met with Erdogan at the U.N., and the countries agreed to resume formal relations for the first time since 2010. In the U.S., hundreds of Jewish activists were arrested Friday after they staged a sit-in at New York City's Grand Central Station protesting the war. The Times of Israel reported that police detained around 200 people, some wearing shirts saying, Not in our name, as they protested the violence and called for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The rush hour protest was organized by the group Jewish Voices for Peace. Back here in the U.S., across the Pacific and Hawaii, a Maui site to be used for wildfire memorial and landfill. This is written by Audrey McAvey of the Associated Press. Hawaii's land board has approved handling over state land on Maui to be used for a wildfire memorial and fire debris disposal. But officials urge Maui County to talk further with the community after some people raised concerns about how the proposed landfill would affect nearby coral reefs and historic sites. The state board of Land and Natural Resources on Friday voted to allow the county to use the parcel in Olovalu that is about five miles south of Lahaina. The August 8th wildfire is the deadliest to hit the United States in over a century. It left behind burnt cars, charred beans, and piles of rubble. Officials have recovered some remains from at least 99 people, but they believe additional human remains are mixed in with the debris ash. U.S. Environmental Protection Agency teams have been removing toxic items like pesticides and solar-powered batteries from that town. The steel and concrete will mostly be recycled, according to Shane Agawa, that is the director of Maui's Department of Environmental Management. Debris destined for the landfill will be mostly ash and small particles, he said. The ash contained high levels of arsenic and lead, and it is now sitting out of exposed to wind or rain. It's also creating hazards for people and pets. Removing it as soon as possible will reduce the risk to returning residents, he said. Using a landfill site that's near the town will also keep people lost close to home. Agawa told the board before it voted, it allows the ash from Lahaina, which contains human remains, to stay in West Maui. Officials said the debris would be put into dumpsters lined with impermeable plastic and then wrapped up and sealed with glue. Another layer of plastic would then cover it before it's placed in the landfill site, which would be closed and covered with grass. It would look like a park, according to Ogawa. The county plans to monitor that area for the next 30 years. Officials plan to install groundwater wells between the landfill and the ocean to check for potential contaminant leaks. Several speakers told the board authorities they should be thinking about how the landfill will affect the environment centuries from now, in part because the landfill is just 400 yards from the coast. The reef that's off of Oluvalu hosts the largest known manta ray population in the U.S., and it is the primary source of coral larvae for the reefs of Lanai, Molokai, and West Maui, 
That is according to Scott Crawford, the Maui Marine Director for the Nature Conservancy of Hawaii. He is worried the landfill would f- further stress the 939-acre reef, which is already under pressure from other environmental challenges, both globally and locally. Crawford told the board, "I hope that we are thinking in terms of a hundred or two hundred years or more when the great great grandchildren are using this area." Thanks, Nicole. We are almost up to our break point here, but a few things from the fifty states. Page of the USA Today, from Alabama, Tuscaloosa, dozens of youngsters in costumes attended the city's seventh annual Tech or Treat Night, featuring science, technology, engineering, and math activities, along with free candy distributed by people from city departments and community organizations. From the District of Columbia, police have recaptured a murder suspect. Who escaped custody in September, forcing an hours-long shelter-in-place order at George Washington University? The city's Metropolitan Police Department says 30-year-old Christopher Haynes was arrested by the U.S. Marshals Service Capital Area Regional Fugitive Task Force. From Boston, Massachusetts, the state attorney general's office announced settlements totaling hundreds of thousands of dollars with a Republican couple and others after investigators found evidence of campaign finance violations. From Mackinac Island, Michigan, police say a man dressed in black who works for a group that conducts opposition research on Democrats was stopped while climbing a bluff near the governor's summer home. The man's name was not released, although he said he worked for America Rising, a GOP opposition group. And from Burlington, Vermont, JetBlue is ending its flight from the city to New York City in January, a flight that goes back more than two decades and accounts for an average of 10% of the passengers at the city's airport every month, according to the airport's director of aviation. So for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Nicole Tam, and my name is Rachel Mithelman. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are um, Scott Spavick and Jeff Cassett. Uh, now with some opinions from the Des Moines Register in USA Today, here's Scott. Thank you, Jeff. Our first opinion is titled, Fixing House, GOP Works to Rebuild Faith. It's written by Heather R. Higgins, who is an opinion contributor and CEO of Independent Women's Voice. You'd never have thought when listening to the pundits that the long process of getting a new speaker was justified. When it came to the GOP failure to find a speaker, MSNBC's Morning Joe hosts and chorus were all crocodile tears. Last week saw them weeping that the, Re that the Republican dysfunction is settling on a speaker meant losing the respect of Chairman Xi. They needed to chill. Chinese President Xi Jinping knows even if MB MSNBC does not, that de democratic republics are messy, full of things such as no confidence votes, bickering, removals, and recriminations. They are messy because human beings are messy. Most of us Americans will take the mess to the orderliness via co coercion that comes from dictatorships and totalitarian regimes. The tiny media bubble that cares about Washington and politics, and which loves to crank the volume on any potentially negative story about Republicans, was doing their best to turn the story into ratings. Americans want promises kept. But America doesn't think much of Congress, and a lot of Americans, to the extent they are thinking about Congress at all, feel that every day Congress isn't in session is a day lawmakers can't do more damage. Republican House members happen to know those voters, the same ones who voted for former President Donald Trump and probably voted for many of them. They are voters who want a Congress that is worried about what Americans think of Congress. They'd like a Congress that actually keeps its promises, a Congress that acts on our problems here and at home, our worrying costs of living, our non-existent border, our expensive health care that needs to allow us to see real cash prices up front, our high suicide and drug addiction rates, our schools too many parents no longer trust because they teach victimhood rather than success and won't be transparent. What they don't want is a Congress that leaves men and women who've lived worked and paid taxes here all their lives without a hand when they need one, because it prioritizes giving those same resources to asylum-claiming immigrants who've just arrived. They've seen this movie before. They remember how we were assured that our country would be, a, would be permanently scarred by the unprecedented lengthy process to arrive at a speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, right. That prediction was as accurate as commentators' recent vapors. Those 15 ballots were worth it to get what was promised, separate votes on appropriations and commitments from Congress to be more responsible with spending our money to at least slow the breakless spending hurtling, toward a, hurtling us towards bankruptcy. Working through frustration, many of the House GOP members know their voters expect this of them. They also know it is very hard to deliver because so many other members get reelected by playing Santa Claus with a seemingly bottomless gooding bag. That meant real differences of opinion with a lot at stake. Telling them to just get over it or just fix it was like telling your head cold to go away faster. It doesn't work. Republicans had to work through the F's, fuming, furious, frustrated, frayed, 
and ultimately fatalistic forbearing and figuring it out. After several weeks, they've figured it out, and the country is better off for their taking the time to work it through and unanimously buy into that consensus. Representative Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, is the new Speaker of the House, and he's on a mission to restore our pride in Congress. And even better, we've got a Speaker who clearly cares more about our good opinion than China's. Score one for the people. Jeff? Also in the opinion section, <clears throat> this by Rex Hupke, who is a USA Today columnist. Um, this is entitled, By Electing Johnson, GOP is Going Full MAGA. He writes, if you care about democracy or about abortion rights or about the lives, freedoms, and well-being of LGBTQ plus friends and loved ones, this past week was important. If you believe the 2020 presidential election was free and fair, as it has been proven time and time and again, this past week was important. If you see former president and current criminal defendant Donald Trump and his MAGA movement as a dishonest, disingenuous threat to America, if you believe religion and politics shouldn't mix, that we are not a theocracy, this past week was important. It marked the end of, to the myth of the moderate House Republican and the party's embrace of both Trump and a form of right-wing extremism voters have made clear they find unpalatable. I implore you, young voters, older voters, and everyone in between, to pay attention. New House Speaker Mike Johnson is merely a calmer MAGA zealot. Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives ended their weeks-long leadership debacle by unanimously voting to elevate Louisiana Republican Mike, Mike Johnson to House Speaker. His name recognition was low, his demeanor and bespectacled countenance far calmer than your traditional Trump-enthralled MAGA lawmaker, but his ascendance to second in line to the presidency, represented a jaw-dropping GOP capitulation to right-wing extremism and showed that the party is Trump's and Trump's alone. Putting a figure like Johnson, an election denialist and a, legal, a key legal strategist in the effort to overturn President Joe Biden's clear victory, a staunch abortion rights opponent, a vocally anti-LGBTQ plus lawmaker in power made a clear statement, there are no moderate Republicans in the House with power. This is an extremist political party with no intention of untethering itself from its often courtroom-bound leading presidential primary candidate, Trump. This is a political party willing to lie and... <clears throat> dissemble, and win at any cost to push an agenda wholly out of line with the views of most American voters, as evidenced by the GOP's struggles in the last three national elections and in smaller elections across the country. Johnson makes clear his dislike of the separation of church and state. 
As soon as he won the gavel Wednesday, Johnson stood in front of the Speaker's chair and said, I believe that Scripture, the Bible, is very clear that God is the one that raises up those in authority. He raised up each of you, all of us. And I believe that God has ordained and allowed each one of us to be brought here for this specific moment and this time. A day later, he told Fox News' Sean Hannity, Go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's my worldview. In an April social media post, he dismissively referenced the so-called separation of church and state, something he clearly doesn't agree with. Lest you say, so he believes in God, what of it? Consider the response if a non-Christian House speaker spoke similarly about their faith intertwining with their work as a political leader. Hannity and most Republicans would spontaneously combust, and rightfully so. Johnson is a big MAGA election denier, as big as there is. Beyond Johnson's desire to hoist his faith upon the masses, he has, and as best I can tell, still is an election denier. He fought tooth and nail to build a ludicrous legal case seeking to overturn the 2020 presidential election results in key states, and he voted against certifying Biden's win. He has never apologized for that undemocratic sham. After being named House Speaker, Johnson was again asked whether he still believes that the election was stolen. He wouldn't directly comment, saying only, My position on that is very well known. If Trump is the GOP's presidential nominee, as seems likely, there's little doubt Johnson will do all he can to override voters' decisions and again try to help Trump cheat. Comparing Roe v. Wade to Hitler's judicial philosophy. This all sounds bad, but we've barely dipped a toe into Johnson's extremism. He once suggested Roe v. Wade was negatively impacting the economy. Quote, if we had all those able-bodied workers in the economy, we wouldn't be going upside down and toppling over like this, end quote. In a 2005 opinion column, he called abortion a holocaust and said, the prevailing judicial philosophy is no different than Hitler's. When Roe v. Wade was overturned, he said it was a great, joyous occasion. A House Speaker hugging the Great Replacement Theory? He has parroted views that align with the white supremacist Great Replacement Theory, a conspiracy theory that liberals are trying to replace white citizens with non-white immigrants. In a 2022 congressional hearing, Representative Johnson referred to Democratic lawmakers and said, This is the plan of our friends on this side, to turn all the illegals into voters. In an April 2022 news release about immigration at the border, he wrote, President Biden's continued intentional destruction of our country at the expense of our own people must stop. Johnson's bigoted anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric, he doesn't remember. (coughs) Pardon me. Johnson has similarly used despicable rhetoric in his years-long fight 
against LGBTQ plus rights, tossing around terms like dangerous lifestyle and inherently unnatural. He once wrote in an editorial, your race, creed, and sex are what you are, while homosexuality and cross-dressing are things you do. This is a free country, but we don't give special protections for everyone, every person's bizarre choices. In a July statement regarding a congressional hearing he took part in, Johnson wrote, Today, nearly one in four high school students identifies as LGBTQ, whether it's by scalpel or by social co- coercion from teachers, professors, administrators, and left-wing media, It's an attempt to transition the young people of our country. He has introduced the federal equivalent of Florida's notorious Don't Say Gay bill, saying the Democratic Party and their cultural allies are on a misguided crusade to immerse young children in sexual imagery and radical gender ideology. Asked last week about his past anti-LGBTQ plus statements, Johnson told Hannity, quote, I don't even remember some of them. That's neither a denial or suggestion that any of his hateful words or policies are wrong. Johnson shows the GOP's full embrace of Trump and MAGA. I'll put it simply in a way that will undoubtedly ruffle some feathers. House Republicans unanimously chose a pro-Trump, anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ+, anti-immigration, religious zealot as their leader. He's not noisy and buffoonish like other MAGA figures. Think Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia or Matt Gates of Florida. He's worse. He's a true believer, and while I respect his devotion to his faith and in no way question his right to choose beliefs, they have no business in politics. That he's able to bend those beliefs to fit around a decidedly unchristian figure like Trump only makes it clear Johnson and that and the party that supports him We'll do whatever it takes to make the rest of us live under beliefs that, in most cases, are not our own. Do not underestimate the seriousness of Johnson's rise. If you take nothing else from Johnson as an avatar of the GOP, take this. He doesn't care what you think. He is, as he has said, driven by a biblical worldview, and he will seek to implement that worldview by any means necessary. If you care about women's productive rights, if Trump disgusts you, if you believe your vote should count, if you believe an LGBTQ plus person's humanity and fundamental right to exist is important, please pay attention. Watching a political party excitedly put a figure like Johnson into a position of great power should shake a majority of Americans to their core. Scott? Thank you, Jeff. It's time to move on to sports, and I'll start with what's on TV today. College golf will be on at 2 p.m. on the Golf Channel. The East Lake Cup first round from the East Lake Golf Club in Atlanta. At 7 p.m., the uh, World Series will be on Fox. That'll be Game 3, 
World Series game on Fox. Texas Rangers versus the Arizona Diamondbacks. In NBA basketball at 7 p.m. on NBA TV, it's the Golden State Warriors versus the New Orleans Pelicans. At 9.30 p.m. on NBA TV, it's the Orlando Magic versus the L.A. Lakers. Monday Night Football tonight on ABC and ESPN starts at 7.15 p.m. and it's the Las Vegas Raiders versus the Detroit Lions. In tennis, at 5 a.m. today on the Tennis Channel was the WTA Final Round Robin. At 1 p.m., also on the Tennis Channel, is the WTA Finals Round Robin. And at 9 p.m. is the WTA Finals Round Robin, also on the Tennis Channel. And finally, in uh, women's volleyball, at 8.30 p.m. on ESPU, ESPNU, Athletes Unlimited, Team Hence versus Team Edmund from Mesa, Arizona. And I'll read a short article from the sports section. Boyland and Galvin carry Drake to 5-0 in Pioneer with 33-7 victory. This comes from the Associated Press. Dorian Boyland ran for 170 yards and three touchdowns, and Christian Galvin added 115 yards and a score as Drake rolled past Stetson 33-7 on Saturday at Drake Stadium to go 5-0 in pioneer play. The Bulldogs held Stetson to 283 yards of total offense while their ground game churned out to 293 yards, and all four of their touchdowns, Stetson had just 83 yards of rushing offense. Great second half, Drake coach Todd Steps has said. We wanted to have a great first half in a weather game like this, but you have to give Stetson a lot of credit. They played hard and did some nice things on offense. Our guys know that we will get everybody's best shot with the position we're in right now. Luke Bailey was just 8 of 23 passing for 97 yards for the Drake and threw three interceptions, but the Bulldogs' defense recovered four Stetson fumbles and picked off a Matt O'Connor pass. Boyland and Galvin combined for 54 of the team's 59 carries for the Bulldogs. Boyland scored on runs of four, seven, and one yard, and Galvin punched in from the one with 316 left to play. The offensive line, tight ends, and fullbacks all created a lot of creases, Boylan said. Coming into the week, we knew we could run the ball well if we executed. Stetson's O'Connor was 14 of 34, passing for 199 yards to lead the Hatters. Tyler Radica led Drake with eight tackles. Jacob Thompson added seven. J.R. Flood, Jake Shipia, and Duke Fry and... Uh, Gene Blaylock all recovered fumbles for the Bulldogs. Drake, which has won its last five games, travels to Poughkeepsie, New York on Saturday to face Marist. The Bulldogs play host to Presbyterian on November the 11th, then finish at Butler on November the 18th. Stetson Hatters, what a great name. Uh, <clears throat> University of Northern Iowa. Uh, Pesek and Hickson... Pisa Hickson scores two touchdowns as UNI holds off Illinois State. Amari Pisa Hickson ran for two touchdowns and Northern Iowa beat Illinois State 24-21 on Saturday. Theo Day was 20 of 30, passing for 289 yards with a touchdown to Desmond Hudson 
and an interception. Pisic Hickson carried the ball 30 times for all the Panthers' 107 positive rushing yards. <clears throat> the Redbirds, who are 4-4 four and four and 2-3 and three in the Missouri Valley, got within three points on Zach and Ekstad's 17-yard touchdown pass to Cam Grandy with 27 seconds remaining. The ensuing onside kick went out of bounds to the Panthers after a scramble. The Panthers, who are 5-3 and three and 4-1 four and one in the conference, led 21-14 at halftime and 24-14 with just under three minutes left after Matthew Cook's 31-yard field goal. And uh, Max Scherzer will return to start Game 3 of the World Series in Texas, or for Texas. <clears throat> Max Scherzer is set to start Game 3 of the World Series for Texas against Arizona. The Rangers will be the third team the three-time Cy Young Award winner has pitched for in a fall classic. Scherzer had missed more than a month because of a muscle strain in his shoulder before starting twice in the AL Championship Series against the Houston Astros. He pitched in the pennant-clinching Game 7 last Monday, exiting with the lead after allowing two runs on 44 pitches over two and two-thirds innings. Scott? Who will start for Iowa in each weight class? This is has to do with wrestling. It's written by Eli McCowan of the Des Moines Register. The Iowa men's wrestling team kicks off the season November 4th at Cal Baptist. Let's take a look at the Hawkeyes' projected starting lineup. At 125 pounds, it's Drake Ayala or Joey Cruz. At 133 pounds, it's Brody Teske or Cullen Shriver. 141, Real Woods or Cullen Shriver or Joel Jasorgo. Victor Voynich or Caleb Rathjen at 159. 157, Jared Franick and Colby Siebricht. 165 is Michael Caliendo or Patrick Kennedy. 174, Nelson Brands or Gabe Arnold. 184, Abe Assad or Aiden McCain. 197, Kobe Franklin or Zach Glazier. And heavyweight is Tony Cassiopeia or Ben Cuter. Now let's read Dear Abby. And it's entitled, Wedding Plans Hit a Snag Over Tipsy Relatives. Dear Abby, my nephew is getting married soon, and he and his father are having issues with the guest list. My brother-in-law has a few immediate family members who don't know their limit when it comes to alcohol, and my nephew is worried that if they're invited, they'll abuse the open bar and embarrass the family. My nephew doesn't want to invite these family members to his wedding. My brother-in-law says he will speak to them beforehand to warn them about their alcohol intake, but he insists he won't attend the wedding if these family members are invited aren't invited, excuse me. Neither one is budging, and what is supposed to be a happy occasion is becoming a battleground. Please offer some words of advice that will work for all. Signed, Al Anti-Alcohol Auntie. Dear Auntie, I'll try. A wedding celebrates more than the joining of two people in matrimony. It also it is also the joining together of two families. Sooner or later, your nephew's wife and in-laws are going to be exposed to these relatives. Because Dad feels so strongly about them being included and is willing to talk to them about this beforehand, he 
should be put in charge of evicting anyone who acts out because they had too much to drink. The solution isn't perfect, but it may diffuse the situation. Dear Abby, <clears throat> why is it, as a man who's capable of going to the symphony as well as watching The Bachelor, spending a day shooting rifles or sipping wine, having silly conversations or those where I listen, compared to providing feedback, and is an animal lover, but allergic to some, I cannot attract the women I want. What do you think? Signed, Confused in Tennessee. Dear Confused, so you're someone with broad interests who cannot find a broad who finds you interesting. If you start looking for candidates who enjoy the sympathy and or watching The Bachelor, shooting rifles and sipping wine, enjoying conversation and having a particular affinity for an animal to which you are not allergic, you may find someone who thinks you are interesting and attractive. Although you listed the various interests you have, not once did you mention any qualities you would like for a prospective mate to have. You might find it helpful to concentrate on that for a while. Emotional compatibility should be at the top of the list. And finally, dear Abby, we lost our daughter to gun violence, horribly, publicly, and violently. We were the subject of news, speculation, and gossip. It was several years ago, but people still ask for details and ask intrusive questions. It drives me up a wall and hurts my heart. I still struggle with how to respond to these people. What should I do? Signed, don't want to talk about it. Abby says, Dear don't, please accept my sympathy for your tragic loss. Consider responding this way. I'm sure you mean well but I do not want to discuss this with you now or ever. Please don't ask again. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Jeff Cassett, and Scott has been my, mic uh, my partner at the microphone. Earlier, you heard from Nicole Tam and Rachel Mithelman. You can listen to Irish programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.